0: Chapter 38, Part 3 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Benzing of Oxford, Ohio. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 38, Political and Personal, Part 3. "'They have introduced a couple of Venetian gondolas on the large pond in Central Park,' remarked a friend. "'All very well,' replied the verdant traveler. "'But between you and me, these birds can't stand our cold climate more than one season.' The gentleman from Wallingford evidently had as little idea of the true nature of the African as the young swell had of the pleasure boats of Venice. Mr. Johnson of Wallingford "'The gentleman misapprehends my remarks.' The gentleman from Norwich had urged that the Negroes should vote because they have fought in our battles. I replied that oxen and asses can fight, and therefore should, on the same grounds, be entitled to vote. Mr. Barnum I accept the gentleman's explanation. Doubtless General Grant will feel himself highly complimented when he learns it requires no greater capacity to handle the musket and meet armed battalions in the field than oxen and asses possess. Let the educated free Negro feel that he is a man. Let him be trained in New England churches, schools, and workshops. Let him support himself, pay his taxes, cast his vote, like other men. And he will put to everlasting shame the champions of modern democracy by the overwhelming eminence he will give in his own person of the great scripture truth that God has made of one blood all the nations of men, a human soul, that God has created and Christ died for is not to be trifled with. It may tenant the body of a Chinaman, a Turk, an Arab, or a Hottentot. It is still an immortal spirit. And amid all assumptions of caste, it will in due time vindicate the great fact that without regard to color or condition, all men are equally children of the common father. A few years since, an English lord and his family were riding in his carriage in Liverpool. It was an elegant equipage. The servants were dressed in rich livery, the horses comparisoned in the most costly style, and everything betokened that the establishment belonged to a scion of England's proudest aristocracy. The carriage stopped in front of a palatial residence. At this moment, a poor beggar woman rushed to the side of the carriage and, gently seizing the lady by the hand, exclaimed, For the love of God, give me something to save my poor, sick children from starvation. You are rich, I am your poor sister, for God is our common father. Wretch! exclaimed the proud lady, casting the woman's hand away. Don't call me sister, I have nothing in common with such low brutes as you. And the great lady doubtless thought she was formed of finer clay than this suffering medicant. But when a few days afterwards she was brought to a sickbed by the smallpox, contracted by touching the hand of that poor wretch, she felt the evidence that they belonged to the same great family and were subject to the same pains and diseases. The state of Connecticut, like New Jersey, is a border state of New York. New York has a great commercial city where aldermen rob by the tens of thousands and where principle is studied much more than principle. I can readily understand how the Negro came to be debased in the North as well as the South. The interests of the two sections in the product of Negro labor were nearly identical. The North wanted Southern cotton, and the South was ready in turn to buy from the North whatever was needed in the way of Northern supplies and manufactures. The community of commercial interests led to an identity in political principles, especially in matters pertaining to the Negro race, the working race of the South, which produced the cotton and consumed so much of what northern merchants and manufacturers sold for plantation use. The southern planters were good customers and were worth conciliating. So when Connecticut proposed in 1818 to continue to admit colored men to the franchise, the South protested against thus elevating the Negroes, and Connecticut succumbed. No other New England state has ever so disgraced itself and now the Connecticut Democrats are asked to permit the white citizens of this state to express their opinion in regard to reinstating the colored man where our revolutionary sires placed him under the Constitution. Now, gentlemen, Democrats, as you call yourselves, you who speak so flippantly of your loyalty, your love for the Union, and your love for the people, you who are generally talking right and voting wrong, we ask you to come forward and act democratically, by letting your masters, the people, speak. The word white in the Constitution cannot be strictly and literally construed. The opposition express great love for white blood. Will they let a mulatto vote half the time, a quadroon three-fourths, an octoroon seven-eighths of the time? If not, why not? Will they enslave seven-eighths of a white man because one-eighth is not Caucasian? Is this democratic? Shall not the majority seven control the minority one? Out on such democracy. But a democratic minority committee of two seem to have done something besides study ethnology. They have also paid great attention to fine arts and are particularly anxious that all voters shall have a genius for the arts. I would like to ask them, If it has always been political practice to insist that every voter in the great unwashed and unterrified of any party should become a member of the Academy of Arts before he votes the regular ticket? I thought he was received into the full fellowship of the political party if he could exhibit sufficient inventive faculties and genius for the arts to enable him to paint a black eye. Can a man whose genius for the arts enables him to strike from the shoulder scientifically be admitted to full fellowship in a political party? Is it evident that the political artist has studied the old masters if he exhibits his genius by tapping an opponent's head with a shillelagh? The oldest master in this school of art was Cain, and so canes have been made to play their part in politics, at the polls, and even in the United States Senate chamber. Is genius for the arts and those occupations requiring intellect and wisdom sufficiently exemplified in adroitly stuffing ballot boxes, forging soldiers' votes, and copying a directory, as has been done, as the return list of votes? Is the inventive faculty of voting early and often a passport to political brotherhood? Is it satisfactory evidence of the artistic genius to head a mob, and a mob which is led and guided by political passion, as numerous instances in our history prove, is the worst of mobs? Is it evidence of high art, to lynch a man by hanging him to the nearest tree or lamppost? Is a whiskey scrimmage one of the lost arts restored? We all know how the artists of both political parties are prone to embellish elections and to enhance the excitements of political campaigns by inciting riots and the frequency with which these disgraceful outbreaks have occurred of late, especially in some of the populous cities, is cause for just alarm. It is dangerous art. Mr. Speaker, I repeat that I am a friend of the Irishman. I have traveled through his native country and have seen how he is oppressed. I have listened to the eloquent and patriotic appeals of Daniel O'Connell, and Conciliation Hall in Dublin, and I have gladly contributed to his fund for ameliorating the condition of his countrymen. I rejoice to see them rushing to this land of liberty and independence, and it is because I am their friend that I denounce the demagogues who attempt to blind and mislead them to vote in the interests of any party against the interests of humanity and the principles of true democracy. My neighbors will testify that at midwinter, I employ Irishmen by the hundred to do work that is not absolutely necessary, in order to help them support their families. After hearing the Minority Report last week, I began to feel that I might be disenfranchised, for I have no great degree of genius for the arts. I felt, therefore, that I must get posted on that subject as soon as possible. I at once sauntered into the Senate chamber to look at the paintings. There I saw portraits of great men and I saw two empty frames from which the pictures had been removed. These missing paintings, I was told, were portraits of two ex-governors of the state, whose position on political affairs was obnoxious to the dominant party in the legislature, and especially obnoxious were the supposed sentiments of these governors on the war. Therefore, the Senate voted to remove the pictures, and thus proved, as it would seem, that there is an intimate connection between politics and art. I have repeatedly traveled through every state in the South, And I assert what every intelligent officer and soldier who has resided there will corroborate, that the slaves, as a body, are more intelligent than the poor whites. No man who has not been there can conceive to what a low depth of ignorance the poor, snuff-taking, clay-eating whites of some portion of the South have descended. I trust the day is not far distant when the common school shall throw its illuminating rays through this Egyptian pall." I have known slave mechanics to be sold for $3000 and even $5000 each, and others could not be bought at all, and I have seen intelligent slaves acting as stewards for their masters, traveling every year to New Orleans, Nashville, and even to Cincinnati to dispose of their masters' crops. The free colored citizens of Opelousas, St. Martinsville, and all the Atacapas country in Louisiana are as respectable and intelligent as an ordinary community of whites. They speak the French and English languages, educate their children in music and the arts, and they pay their taxes on more than fifteen millions of dollars. Gentlemen of the Opposition, I beseech you to remember that our state and our country ask from us something more than party tactics. It is absolutely necessary that the loyal blacks at the South should vote in order to save the loyal whites. Let Connecticut Without regard to parties, set them an example that should influence the action at the South, and prevent a new form of slavery from arising there, which shall make all our expenditure of blood and treasure fruitless." But some persons have this color prejudice simply by force of education, and they say, well a nigger is a nigger and he can't be anything else. I hate niggers anyhow. 20 years ago I crossed the Atlantic and among our passengers was an Irish judge. Who was coming out to Newfoundland as chief justice. He was an exceedingly intelligent and polished gentleman, and extremely witty. The passengers from the New England states and those from the South got into a discussion on the subject of slavery, which lasted three days. The Southerners were finally worsted, and when their arguments were exhausted, they fell back on the old story by saying, oh, curse a nigger, he ain't half human anyhow, he had no business to be a nigger, etc., One of the gentlemen then turned to the Irish judge and asked his opinion of the merits of the controversy. The judge replied, Gentlemen, I have listened with much edification to your arguments pro and con during these three days. I was quite inclined to think the anti-slavery gentlemen had justice and right on their side, but the last argument from the South has changed my mind. I say, a nigger has no business to be a nigger, and we should kick him out of society and trample him underfoot. Always provided, gentlemen, you prove that he was born black at his own particular request. If he had no word to say in the matter, of course he is blameless for his color and is entitled to the same respect that other men are, who properly behave themselves. Mr. Speaker, I am no politician. I came to this legislature simply because I wished to have the honor of voting for the two constitutional amendments. One, for driving slavery entirely out of our country, the other to allow men of education and good moral character to vote, regardless of the color of their skins. To give my voice for these two philanthropic, just, and Christian measures is all the glory I ask legislative-wise. I care nothing, whatever, for any sect or party under heaven, as such. I have no axes to grind, no logs to roll, no favors to ask. All I desire is to do what is right and prevent what is wrong. I believe in no expediency that is not predicated of justice for in all things politics as well as everything else i know that honesty is the best policy a retributive providence will unerringly and speedingly search out all the wrongdoing hence right is always the best in the long run certainly in the light of this great american spirit of liberty and equal rights which is sweeping over this country and making the thrones of tyrants totter in the old world No party can afford to carry slavery, either of body or mind. Knock off your manacles and let the man go free. Take down the blinds from his intellect and let in the light of education and Christian culture. When this is done, you have developed a man. Give him the responsibility of a man and the self-respect of a man by granting him the right of suffrage. Let universal education and the universal franchise be the motto of free America, and the toiling millions of Europe, who are watching it with such intense interest, will hail us as their saviors. Let us loyally sink party on this question and go for God and our country. Let no man attach an eternal stigma to his name by shutting his eyes to the great lesson of the hour and voting against permitting the people to express their opinion on this important subject. Let us unanimously grant this truly democratic boon. Then, When our laws of franchise are settled on a just basis, let future parties divide where they honestly differ on state or national questions which do not trench upon the claims of manhood or American citizenship. End of chapter 38, part 3. Read by Matt Benzing, Oxford, Ohio.